Aloha, and welcome to the Ram Gad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economou, Government Affairs Director for Ram, and I am joined today um, with my good friend, Roy Van Dorn. He is our inaugural guest for our pilot episode of the Ram Gad Pod. Uh, yes, this is a brand new podcast, so don't expect this first episode to be amazing, uh, but we're going to try our best, and we have a great conversation with Roy. Aloha, Roy. Aloha, Jason. So, Roy, for our listeners who might not be familiar with you, how are you involved with RAM? Okay, I've been a member of RAM since 2008. Um, and right now, as a volunteer, I am a member of the Government Affairs Committee, both at RAM and at HAR, and Gina Duncan asked me this year to actually chair the RAM GAC Committee. How long have you been involved with the Government Affairs Committee? I've been involved with the Government Affairs Committee since about 2010, 2011. Um, our good friend Tracy Stice got me into this. Tracy was the president of HAR at the time and first asked me to join a task force on HAR's green position or green position paper. And he liked what I did and suggested slash nominated me to be on HAR GAC's committee. And so you've been serving with HAR's Government Affairs Committee since that time. Yep. How long have you been involved with RAM's Government Affairs Committee? I joined almost immediately after going to my first HAR meeting because it became clear to me that if you're going to be at the state level, you have to understand the county issues. So I immediately, so I've been a month or two shorter than HAR. Very cool. And currently you are the chair for the Government Affairs Committee. Is that correct? That's correct. What got you interested in politics just in general? Oh, I've been a political junkie since, oh, junior high school. I mean, when I was in high school, I remember watching the Watergate hearings. That tells you how old I am. Um, I have never missed an election since my 18th birthday. I did two things on my 18th birthday. I registered for the draft, and I registered to vote. And, you know, throughout this entire time, I've been, you know, politics has been interesting. So, so what are the, the main issues that are interesting you right now? Well, after move, it's really changed moving to Maui. Because when I lived in California, you were, I was mostly interested in the federal and somewhat at the state, and the local stuff really didn't have much of an impact. When I moved to Maui, it became the exact opposite, where the local issues have such a much more important impact upon your day-to-day -day life than what happens at the federal government because we're this small rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So the things that interest me are the things that interest most people on Maui. Where are people going to live? Where is our future economy going to go? How are we going to take care of this island? And do you have answers for that? I mean, what, what is the, the GAC's plan for, for those big major issue questions? 
Oh, that, that, that was two questions. <laughs> <laughs> there is my position, and then there's the Government Affairs Committee's position, right? Because we've got, including myself, 17 really smart and creative people that are a member of our committee, and you're the staff person, and I'm, I'm just the chair. So, and, you know, we have, you know, we're working through a lot of things. And my personal beliefs, and I can tell you, we, we just had a meeting with Alice Lee. Right, councilwoman representing Wailuku. And she and I are on different pages, which is really fascinating because I believe that the way you solve affordable housing is you gotta be denser. You gotta put more rental units in a smaller piece of property because that's the only way it's gonna make economic sense. Mm. You've got a lot of people though, and Alice is one of them, that still wants to provide affordable housing much more the single-family home with the picket fence around it, two-car garage, which is a great vision. I just don't know if the numbers work. So that's kind of where my mindset's at. I think it's an economic decision that has to support a quality-of-life decision. That's interesting. A lot of people don't view it purely as an economic decision. You hinted at that by, by explaining that there's a quality-of-life quality aspect um, to it. Do you think that the economics can match up with the quality of life? Do you think we, we that, first off, let me, let me break that up a little bit. Um, do you think density detracts from the quality of life? I don't think it has to, but you have to be smart about it, right? It's a different paradigm in living. You're looking at mixed-use communities you're looking at things like being able to bike or, or bike or walk or take public transportation from where you live to where you work, right? It's, you know, and there are communities where it's very successful. The challenge for Maui is it's something that we've never had before. Mm. And people haven't grown up with it. So change is hard. And it's going to take an adjustment. So... Are the people of Maui willing to make that change to have a place that they can call their own? That's going to be an interesting path that we're going to get to walk through together. I, I kind of want to put you on the spot. Do, do you think that the people of Maui would make that change? Do you, do you think that we can move away from this ideal that we have of the Maui lifestyle where everybody gets their own yard? And, and do you think we can reasonably move towards a more... Uh, dense system of development that, that has that transportation component built into it? That's a great question. And my only answer is that one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. Right? And even though we come together in this mixed plate community, we are a mixed plate community. Mm. And we've got folks that have lived here their entire lives that are used to a certain lifestyle. We've got people that have been here two and three weeks that have come from a different area that are used to different things. So are there folks that will be happy in this mixed-use, higher-density area? Well, if it allows them to live on Maui, it might be the way their ticket into here, right? For other people, it won't be acceptable. So does one side fit all? No. And we can we can dig into that subject a lot, and we can end up getting into some pretty controversial territory if we're not careful. Um, so I we wanna, haven't already. 
I want to take a step back. Um, I want to, you know, before before the podcast started, we kind of talked about an outline of what we wanted to discuss, and then I immediately just threw that outline out the window by by throwing big questions at you. But let's take a step back. Okay. Tell us about Roy. Where are you from originally? Um, tell us about how you ended up on Maui and, and everything in between there. Okay. So uh, I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So I, yeah, so I was a Canadian by birth, born to two Dutch immigrants that left um, the Netherlands in 1953 after World War II, seeking a better life for themselves. Um, my parents, after 11 years in Canada, my father was a construction worker, and I guess he finally figured out it was cold there and moved to California. And I basically grew up in California. I was seven years old when we got to California. So, and um, grew up in what's now Silicon Valley. I, I saw it evolve from cherry and apricot orchards to the largest tech companies in the world. Um, I worked for Hewlett Packard for 27 years. Um, in 2000, my wife and I bought our first piece of Maui property. And in 2003, we moved here. And um, I brought my Silicon Valley job with me for four and a half years. And then my VP that approved me telecommuting was asked to find employment elsewhere, which sort of ended my ability to telecommute, which ended my Hewlett Packard career. And then I became a realtor. What are some of the, the big changes that you've noticed over your time on Maui? So you moved here in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, that puts you here for 16 years. A lot has changed <laughs> in that time. Uh, tell, us, tell us your thoughts on that change and, and what you've noticed. So first of all, it's gotten more crowded and more busy. And I think that that is an area that needs attention. Um, I also think that one of the things that brought a lot of us here was the slower lifestyle. And it's still a slower lifestyle, but I think that's evolving. I also think it's interesting that our visitor numbers are up. And there was an interesting article a couple of weeks ago in Maui Time where they talked about when visitor numbers increase, it changes the culture of an area. And in the island plan, it talks about we want to limit visitors to one visitor per three permanent residents. And we're exceeding that ratio right now. And I'm starting to get the sense when I go around, because we have this higher percentage of visitors, that the culture is starting to be diluted a little bit, which is really unfortunate because the reason we came here was for that culture. Mm. Do you think that there's anything that can really be done to, to lower the number of visitors? I mean, I've, I've heard this, and I've, I've seen this as well. I mean, I've noticed it in my... I've just been here for a couple of years now. Um, and you can definitely tell that there is an increase and that it does affect the culture. I 100% agree with that. But I'm curious what practical things might even be possible when it comes to lowering that number of visitors that are coming. Again, it's an economic question for me. We have no manufacturing on this island. Our agriculture production is down. We need external dollars to come in to maintain our lifestyles 
and just to maintain, you know, just have the basic necessities that we need as people that live here. We need to find a different revenue stream. And the only way you could reduce the visitor count is if there is a revenue stream to offset that. And right now, I can't give you a good answer what that revenue stream is. Mm. I just think it's so hard to go with this notion that we, we can tell people to stop coming. Um, you know, because visitors, you're absolutely right with the revenue stream. So, so it's kind of like putting the cart before the horse mm-hmm. to say, what can you do to limit the number of visitors if you don't have anything to offset right. that, that revenue coming in? Mm-hmm. You know? um, but even let's say that we figure out how we're going to make money. Um, I would love to see agriculture be you know, the main money maker yeah. for the island. I think all of us kind of are in agreement that, that we would love to see that happen. Um, but what, what do we do after that? There's a difference between not advertising and straight up telling people, do not come. Um, do you think it'll ever get to that do not come point? I think, now this, this is going to sound really strange, but there are two things that limit the number of visitors that you can have. The number of seats on airplanes and the number of places people can stay. And I think, you know, and this is where it gets really hard, right? We as RAM fought for 12 years to get a bread and breakfast bill um, passed. During that same period, we passed a short-term rental bill, which allows people to short-term rent, so which would end, which brings up the number of places people can stay. But at the end of the day, it's the number of beds that are available to the visitors that's going to limit the number of visitors that can come here. Mm. I think there's, there's, certainly, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there's certainly ideas on, on what people would like to do. I, I still I get hung up on, on the limiting the number of beds because it gets to that property rights issue. And, and how do you reasonably do that? Um, well, and, and this is where the, the whole short-term rental bill was, was really interesting, right? How did, we do, how did we do that? We agreed to limits. So, only so many houses within a certain area could, be short, could get a short-term rental permit. The folks in Maui Meadows were extremely organized to ensure that the number was a number they were comfortable with, right? And then you've got, I mean, where, where can people stay? Hotels, condos, and single-family homes, right? Single-family homes we have limits on, mm. right? I'm not seeing a lot of new hotels being built, right? And condos that are allowed to be short-term rented, we're not seeing a lot of those being built. So I think right now there is a either a conscious or an unconscious effort on the island to actually limit the expansion of the beds. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I have a feeling it's a bit more unconscious than, than conscious. I, I think one of the, the big concerns is probably that revenue that we're missing out of um, when it comes to the, the short-term rentals and whatnot. That's why RAM has been pushing platform liability for, mm-hmm. for some time. And 
the one thing that I think we all have to agree upon is illegal vacation rentals need to be addressed. You know, it's not fair to the folks that are going through the process to get a permit. It's not fair to the neighbors that live next to the illegals, um, short-term rentals. I mean, we voted in the last election to increase fines and enforcement. So, I mean, one of the areas that all of us need to, f that we all need to focus on, I think, is to make sure that the visitors are staying in legal accommodations. Mm. What do you think of the notion of liability for visitors who stay in illegal accommodations? It, it, I'm almost going to go to um, landlord-tenant law here. You're an attorney. You know this stuff better than I do. But if, if a renter in good conscience signs a lease and the lease is illegal, in some states, the court will look upon those renters as saying, you're an innocent victim, right? And... I, if someone goes onto one of the reputable websites, makes a reservation in a short-term rental, and they come over here, I think they believe that they're playing by the rules. I think it's not, I don't think we can put the onus on the visitor. I think that's unfair. Because, you know, especially the first-time visitor is just not knowledgeable enough, mm. right? It's these the it's the platforms and it's the people advertising on the platforms that need to be held accountable not the innocent bystander i have a follow-up question which is what do you think about liability for landlords when it's a tenant who's advertising an illegal short-term rental so in my world in the world according to roy Every person that rents a property in their lease needs to state that they are not allowed to sublease and they're not allowed to short-term rent the property. And in that case, if it's done and the landlord discovers it, I think they should have the right to terminate the lease and evict the, the folks doing it. Again... If the landlord puts it in the contract and does the, the, the reasonable steps to ensure it's not happening, and it's happening without his knowledge, his or her knowledge, I don't think that she should be held liable for something that the tenant's doing. Mm. But I do think that it should be grounds for an immediate termination of the lease and immediate eviction. Because I think that in this rental market, that puts the teeth into it because losing your lease in this rental market is a huge penalty. Yeah, that's a great point. So we've, we've covered platform liability, which is one of the, the big issues the GAC has been concerned about. Um, what are some of the other issues that the Government Affairs Committee is, is looking into and tackling, and, and what progress are they making? Okay, so I want to put a disclaimer for the 16 really smart people on the Government Affairs Committee that's not me. Those opinions that just were just expressed are mine and don't necessarily represent those of RAM or the RAM General Government Affairs Committee, okay? 
Um, so I get them all off the hook. Um, so what else are we looking at? Well, we have a strategic plan that we, and then every year we set a set of priorities. Um, from a strategic plan perspective, one of the things that we get involved with every other year, and believe it or not, this is not an election year, despite what you may be seeing on television, we very much get involved in the elections. And our role in the elections is to educate our members relative to the candidates. You know, we do some internal endorsements based upon what we see and our conversations, but our major role is to present, is to give opportunities for our members to meet the candidates and learn about the candidates so they can make their own decision. So I think that's one of the biggest things that we do because when I first got involved with government affairs, there was an election where I actually shook hands with every single person I voted for. And that was the first time in my life that ever happened. And it was just really exciting, you know, all the way from um, the governor down to the mayor, down to the council people, I had an opportunity to have met every single one of them. And I thought that was really, really cool. Um, and then we have our role is around education, so making sure our members have access to in what's going on in terms of important issues. From an issues perspective, one of the big ones is one of the big ones around this island is affordable housing. Mm. What? Yeah, I, I'm always tackling affordable housing. We recently, um, Ram was invited to participate on a panel at the HSAC conference, the Hawaii State Association of Counties conference. Um, and, and it was great. And what we're seeing is that everybody is basically on the same page with a lot of the, the things that are hindering the development of new housing um, or new affordable housing coming online, which is basically the cost of building and the regulatory fees. So, so it comes down to the economics once again. But we've had a few cool ideas as far as how to get a, around some of that. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, the GAC's uh, affordable housing solutions ideas that, that you are keen on? Well, for me, one of the things that, that I want to see worked is the entire infrastructure discussion. Ooh, let's get into that. What do you mean? Well, I lived in a development. I don't live there anymore, but when I first moved to my, I lived in a development where the developer was required to put in all the roads. And the developer put in the roads per county specs at the time. They got to go through a process to get the roads dedicated to the county. The, the county changed the rules. They wouldn't accept the roads. It took years, and recently the council voted to accept the rules, but it was a battle. Really, from that infrastructure point of view, I don't think that we can ask developers to pay for and actually implement the infrastructure that's needed. I don't think it's right that, and this really hurts the small developers over the large developers, but for a small developer to be told they have to put in a water system, and then for the owners to have to maintain that water system because it's a private water system, and because the, for, the county won't accept it and won't integrate it into the county's water system, I don't think it's right that we're creating these small islands on this island. 
Mm. Right? And I don't think it's an effective and efficient way to do things. But guess what the big problem is? What's that? Money. Shock. Shock. <laughs> Who pays for it? And I remember we had just met with the mayor and his chief of staff was there at the meeting and we were leaving and we were shaking hands and just talking story. And I looked at him and I said, by the way, who pays for growth? And you could just see him go, oh my God, this is going to be one long conversation. And of course we had to table it and we never had a chance to get back to it. But that really comes down to one of the questions about affordable housing. Who pays for the infrastructure growth on this island that will enable small developers to do small projects affordably? Do you have any ideas? I got one that'll make sure that I'm never elected to public office. Maybe we don't want to share that one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to get you in in any trouble. What do you think about the move towards focusing on affordable rentals as opposed to focusing on development of of workforce and affordable housing? I'm a major proponent of that. Because I think I think it's a we need to have housing at every single price point. Because if you have affordable rentals, that will allow families, you know, at the beginning of their careers to live in their own place, save some money, and start working on creating a down payment. Then they could do a step up to an entry-level home. What you're hoping for is that there's houses at higher price points, so as when people, their careers blossom, they start making more money, their family sizes increase, they can then step up to the next level of home and so forth. And then towards the end of their careers, when, they're, you know, when their families have gotten smaller, then there are homes to downsize to. But if you have this entire spectrum, then you don't wind up with people buying this starter home and never leaving it because they can't afford anything else or there's nothing else available. And then we have to figure out how to get more starter homes. Mm. So. And with only these starter homes and the competition for these starter homes, that drives up their prices. So I actually believe if you build a spectrum of housing, at diff- starting with rentals, entry level, you know, and then a couple of levels above that, where people can grow into them and then downsize later on in life, that will help to keep the prices of the homes down because of the fact that you don't have different people at different, different economic states of their lives competing for the same property. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit curious. Do you think that there's an issue with the current state of the market on Maui now, as far as where we stand with, with inventory and prices? Um, Answer that, and then I'll, I'll ask you a follow-up. Well, I just sat in a meeting and had three different agents say, the reason we can't sell anything is there's no inventory. Right? So the perception amongst the RAM members right now is there's nothing to sell, which is a bit of an overstatement, you know, because if you go on the MLS, you're going to find stuff. But there is a, there is a shortage of inventory, 
and there are more people right now that want to buy them than are available. Mm. Do you think that's going to get remedied on its own? Or, or what do you think the balance is going to be? You know, it goes back to the island plan, and I wish I had the numbers in front of me. I don't. But the, the Maui Island plan says we have to build X number of houses per year. Yeah. And we're nowhere anywhere close to what that X number is. Maybe you remember what the X number is. We're not. We're close to it, and we haven't been close to it for years. So we've got a backlog. And that means we've got to do some significant building in order to catch up. And as Mayor Arakawa used to say, the reason housing pricings are so high on Maui is because we haven't been building for the last five or six years. Um, so based upon that, we have to build. In order to build, we have to have the infrastructure. You know, We have to have water. We have to have sewage. We have to have roads. We have to have electricity. I don't know about you, but my internet went out last night because of the, because of the Kihei fire. It was really strange living an entire night without internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's become just as important as electricity and water. <laughs> Jeez. So basically, it's, it's an economics thing. It's, it's that supply and demand curve that you learn about in high school, and you think it comes down to that. I think so. And, and then you got to do it smartly. You know, there's a phrase out there called smart growth. And mm. I think people need, you know, there's a lot of phrases out there, right? Smart growth. We have to grow in the right places where it's economically feasible, not only to build, but to put in the infrastructure to build. Right. We need to do smart growth in a way where the communities are efficient. There, we can, there's a great argument out there. There is a group of folks that says we should focus building in central Maui because it's close to the infrastructure. Mm. There's another group that says, well, people work on the west side. They don't want to have to commute every day from Wailuku and Kahalui to Lahaina and uh, Ka'anapali where they're working. So we need to have housing on the west side. The amount of water on the west side is not as great as the amount of water in south Maui. In, um, in central Maui. So how does that play out? And if you do the building in central Maui and people are going to have to commute, the two-lane poly doesn't cut it. right? So we got to be smart about how we do this. Where you build, where it's economically feasible to build, where it makes sense based upon people's jobs, and how do you pay for the infrastructure? Yeah, you know, I usually fall into that that transit-oriented development category, where, where I really think that affordable housing in particular needs to be placed someplace that keeps in mind transportation. So if you're going to have workforce housing, it should be close to a transportation hub, um, preferably with, with strong public transportation support. Um, however, there was testimony regarding a, a project recently where some some testifier, I forget what the gentleman's name was, but, but he got up and he said, um, listen, working class people need to be allowed to live everywhere, not just in central Maui. You know, if I don't have enough money to buy a million dollar mansion, I shouldn't be forced to live in central Maui and no place else on the island. And I thought that that argument um, really addressed 
sort of a basic notion of equity and, and fairness and where people are geographically allowed to be based on their, their economic standing in the world. Um, and that, that's made me re-examine this notion of, of solely doing the, the smart development in terms of how smart it is when it comes to transportation and transportation hubs. And, and I really, it, it's made me broaden my view as far as where things need to be located. But, but you're spot on. No matter where you put housing, you need the infrastructure that can support it. And that includes the roads and whatnot. Um, that, it's just one of these, these topics that goes on forever. And, and that's why we haven't seen enough houses being built for so long, because there's always reasonable complaints. You know, there's always going to be traffic issues, no matter where you put it, right? Absolutely. And Central Maui has a lot more, you know, has had a lot more development than some of the other areas of the island over the last number of years. There are folks in Central Maui that are saying, it should be somebody else's turn. Yeah. And it's these fires. So today, as we're, we're doing this interview, it is July 11th. So, so we've got these uncontrolled wildfires going through the Central Valley right now. And, um, you know, for projects on the west side, fire was used as one of the main reasons why we wouldn't want to put a project there. Um, now, with fires in Central, um, that really brings up this important issue of climate adaptation. Uh, and how that is, is now going to play into the issue of affordable housing like it's started to play into every single other issue. Um, what do you think we, how do you think we should be viewing the, the issue of climate change and climate adaptation when it comes to development? I wish you would have stopped it. What do I think of climate change? I said I think we should be against it. Um, <laughs> so... It goes back to smart growth, right? So as you as the government affairs director, me as a member of the government affairs committee, our bottom line charter is to protect property values and property rights. Uh, yeah, property rights and property values, right? And when you look at climate, and I'm going to go back to an example that came up almost every year in California back when I lived there and it used to rain. There is a river in California called the Russian River. And every year it would flood. And every year people's homes would be damaged. And every year you would see them on TV saying, our houses got damaged by the flood. What are you going to do? We're going to rebuild. Where are you going to rebuild? Right here. But it's been flooded for the last three years. Don't you think it might make a little bit more sense to move it up the bank a little bit? You know, and I think when you look at new development, we got to be looking at areas that are going to be less impacted. Are we, we're probably going to need bigger setbacks, which opens the entire issue, which I don't know if you want to get to, is what do we do with the stuff that's already built, right? So that's harder. For the new stuff, let's be smart. Mm. And if, any, and if there's any golfers out there that um, use the municipal golf course in Waihe, just take a look at that one hole, I forget the whole number, right there on the ocean. It is absolutely gorgeous, but that tea area from 2003, 
when I used to go there with my dog until now is completely different. And that parking lot is completely gone. Oh, wow. So things are happening. And we're going to have to be smart about where we build. And we're also going to have to take steps in order to reinforce the, the shoreline. And I'm not saying seawalls, so... Uh, what I'm saying is that we got to be smart about how we do this because put a seawall in one place and the problem moves down current. So, so just to be very clear, we are not climate change deniers, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we truly believe that climate change is real uh, and that something needs to be done. Absolutely. There's a hole at the, the, the tea box. <laughs> so just in case anybody came into this podcast thinking that we were going to talk about uh, climate change denial... Um, you're, you're wrong. The Realtors Association of Maui recognizes that climate change is real, and we are concerned about it. Um, now, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. We, we've been talking for about 37 minutes. Um, we, we got deep into the, the issues side of things, um, but I want to I switch to a more, more personal set of questions. So for all of my interviews from here on out, I'm going to ask a very similar, if not identical, set of questions to all my guests. This way we can learn a little bit more about you um, in a fun sort of way. So here are my four questions. I'll start one by one. So what book would you recommend to anybody listening? Well, since this audience is RAM members, realtors, and I have never been a Keller Williams agent, let me preface that. I started with Century 21, went to Colwell, now with Hawaii Life. So I've never been a Keller Williams agent. But I would recommend The Millionaire Real Estate Agent by Gary Keller. And I, th it, it's, I found it a very eye-opening book for the way to look at my real estate career. So anyone that hasn't read, as the Keller Williams folks would call it, the Red Book, I would highly recommend it. And... If I can give you a small little antidote. Yeah. Um, one of the things I used to be involved with was scuba diving education. And I was at a seminar one time, uh, and the gentleman giving the presentation stood up and says, you know what all great teachers do? And we all looked at each other and, you know, had no idea. And he goes, they all invest in R&D. And we looked at him and said, research and development? He goes, no, rip off and duplicate. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't care if it's written by a founder of Keller Williams or Century 21 or a small brokerage, uh, boutique brokerage firm. If there's good ideas in it, I'm going to rip them off and duplicate them. <laughs> is is any, anything in particular uh, that stands out in your mind from that book that stuck with you, really changed the way you do things? Well, it's the way that I want to do things. It's the whole way of growing. Um, I haven't been in a position yet to actually grow the business the way that he talks about in the book. But thinking about how one would grow your business and, you know, and develop more, more from a single agent to a team, I think is really insightful. Would non-real estate professionals get anything out of this book or is this solely like a trade publication? I would say this is more of a trade publication. You, I think there's some logical leaps you could take, but I think it's too specific to the real estate agent, real estate professional, than worth the time for someone else. Sorry, Gary, just heard you some hurt some sales. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, question number two. What is guaranteed to make you smile? My wife's laugh. Really? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was thinking about this, and you know that I was coming up with all sorts of smart aleck answers for your question because you know I'm basically a smart aleck. But when I was thinking about it, and I was serious about it. I remember um, just a few, week, a couple of weeks ago, I was walking somewhere, and I heard my wife laughing. And it just brought a smile to my face. And it's like, yeah, that's the thing in life that makes me happy. That, that's the thing that always puts a smile on my face is my wife's laugh. My, uh, I, I have a similar answer to that question. So my wife, who probably will never listen to this, so I'm pretty safe in <laughs> disclosing this, she clears her throat in a very funny way that sounds just like a Muppet. Like, um, and, and whenever I hear my wife clear her throat, it always makes me crack up. Um, so, so I'm happy that you also have your, your wife's laugh as the thing that makes you smile. It was very similar. All right. Number three. What goal do you have that you haven't achieved yet? Well, those of the folks that are listening to this have been putting up with me for the last six years while I've been building my house. <laughs> and it is almost done. The, my drywall inspection is on Monday. The kitchen cabinets are sitting in one of the bedrooms. The um, plumbing fixtures are sitting in the garage. So the light is there at the end of the tunnel. It's like mile 22 of the marathon and we're hitting the wall, but we're still pushing through it. So that's, that's the biggest goal of my life because I've always wanted to build my own house. Since I was probably, since I was uh, at De Anza Community College, my father and I put the second story on his house, on the house that I grew up in, in 1975. And since from that date, I've always wanted to build my house. And 40 years later, it's actually happening. Really? So this is something that you've just been thinking about for 40 years? 40, it's been a goal of mine for 40 years to do this. Did, now your father, um, was he a builder? Was he in construction at all? He, he was a plumber. Okay. Yeah. So, so you grew up around sort of that do-it-yourself, hands-on mm-hmm. mentality. Right. Wow. And you're almost there. We're almost there. I mean, I can come over this afternoon. We can knock that out. I'm, <laughs> I'm good with the plumbing fixtures. I can, I can help you without. Yeah. That'll be great. So, so about how much longer do you think you have? Um, I think that we're about two months or so away from being able to live in the house. And then you're just going to sell it and move on, oh, start building no. another one? I'm going, out, I'm going out of that house feed first. <laughs> yeah. All right. The Undertaker or the, the men in the, with the straight jackets, are, those are the only ones that are taking me out of that house. <laughs> I like it. Um, and my, my final question, what one piece of advice would you give to anybody listening? I'm going to rip off some, a gentleman by the name of George Adder, A-D-A-I-R. And he said that everything you ever wanted in life is on the other side of fear. So if you can get past the fear, you can do almost anything. Hmm. Do you have an example of a time that you overcame your fears, Roy Van Dorn? I picked up the phone and called my wife. That is outstanding. I feel like that's, that's a good way. <laughs> I don't even want to ask any more follow-up questions. That, that's a great way to end this. 
Um, do you have anything you'd like to say before we, we sign off? Um, no, I, I, I think it's exciting that you're doing these. Um, I'm sure the future guests will be much more interesting and have a lot more specifics to add, especially if you can get some of our elected officials and county officials to uh, participate. Um, I just wanted to let everyone know that the Government Affairs Committee is always open to your input. And as I've told many people, if you have any input, be sure to send it to Jason. Yes, send me your input. Um, we have podcast interviews scheduled with Managing Director Sandy Baz coming up. And we also have a podcast scheduled with Planning Director Michelle McLean coming up. So those are two very exciting guests. If you've made it to the end of this podcast and you listen to the whole thing, thank you. I love you. I love you, even if you didn't listen to the whole thing. But you'll never know that because you never listened to this. Um, I promise we will get better at this. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening. Mahalo. Bye. <laughs>